11, Mark chapter 11, starting at verse number 15, Mark chapter 11, verse 15. When they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people, buying, selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he, stepped, he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. Let's pray and ask God to speak to our hearts this morning and touch our minds from his word. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your goodness. We pray, God, that you would touch and anoint and help us to understand and hear what you have to say. Lord, let your will be done and let your spirit touch our hearts and our minds today. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated this morning. This passage of scripture in Mark tells us the story of Jesus going into the temple and uh, turning over the tables of the money changers. This is a very dramatic scene, a very intense scene. If you've ever watched any of the uh, you know, re redoings of, of the life of Christ on video, it's always a very exciting and, and energetic scene and one of great passion as Jesus comes into the table and is flipping tables and turning over tables and opening cages and doves are flying everywhere and a very dramatic and, and passionate scene and you get a sense of Jesus' passion for the house of God, for the temple. And uh, Jesus says some things that are, are, you know, at face value, we could take it as Jesus didn't, just really didn't like people selling and buying things inside the temple. It was not a marketplace. It was a place of prayer. And so, in one sense, that is exactly what Jesus is saying. But there's another dynamic to the words of Jesus and the reason why he did what he did. Uh, if you, uh, Maris, if you could throw that picture of that PowerPoint up for me this morning, it'll help illustrate some of what I'm saying. Um, Jesus' experience in the temple was Herod's temple by uh, if you look at Jewish history, the temple was first built by Solomon many, many years before. That temple was destroyed, uh, and then it was rebuilt by, uh, by Jewish leaders who, who returned back to uh, Jesus' day. And that temple was desecrated or, or damaged or left into disrepair. And so Herod came along and, and uh, restored or, or, or built up and and became a better temple than what it was before. It was a beautiful edifice, one of the larger construction efforts of the first century. Uh, Josephus, a Jewish historian, records that Herod uh, was interested in perpetuating his name through building projects. And so his construction programs were extensive. They were large, and they were paid for by the people, by the taxes. And so his taxes were quite high, um, and, and one of his masterpieces of construction and, and, and building was this temple in Jerusalem. The old temple, uh, not Solomon's temple, but the one that was rebuilt by Zerubbabel, was replaced by a magnificent edifice. An agreement was made between Herod and the Jewish religious authorities that the sacrifice, sacrificial rituals called offerings would, were to be con continued 
unabated during the whole entire time of the reconstruction period, and that the construction would be done by the priests themselves. Later in Exodus, uh, later the Exodus 3013 sanctuary shekel was reinstituted to support the temple as a temple tax. So Jesus' temple experience was this beautiful edifice rebuilt and restored by Herod, the king of Judea, the, the, the one who was over that area. The, the court of the Gentiles was an area that, that you see, let me see if I can find it here on this thing. The Gentiles' courtyard was, was somewhere in this vicinity here. Um, and it was also the women's courtyard where the women were allowed to come in. And uh, if you were non-Jewish, you could enter this particular area and you could go. And uh, it was primarily a bazaar. It had vendors selling souvenirs, sacrificial animals, food, as well as currency changers because um, there was the Roman money or the Tyrian money. And the Jews were not allowed to coin their own money, so they viewed Roman currency as an abomination to the Lord. And as mentioned in the New Testament account of Jesus and the money changers, Jerusalem was packed with Jews who had come for Passover, and uh, many of them had to exchange their money from Roman currency to the temple currency. And so with that came a tax, right? Just like you you go to the mall, and you want to exchange money from Canadian to another country, you're going to pay a little bit of a fee to have that that service done. And so it was in the temple, there was money changers. You would exchange your national currency for the currency that was accepted by the temple. The priests in their white linen robes and tubular haps were everywhere directing pilgrims and advising them on what kind of sacrifices they would perform. It was said that that if you came to the temple without a sacrifice, you could go and buy one from one of the vendors. But oftentimes, what was suspected and it was later proven to be true was the priest would, you would go and buy your spotless lamb. And because lambs are hard to come by that are without blemish, without spot, without bruise, without defect, you would buy your, your lamb and you would take it over to the priest, and the priest would take the lamb to be sacrificed and would just basically circle around in the passages behind the vendors, and the lamb would get redeposited back into the marketplace. So, you know, you thought the lamb you purchased was actually going to be sacrificed, but it was just circling back around to where they were selling the other animals. Sometimes the The lambs were crippled or lame and were marketed as being whole and and were good, but they were just a selling piece. And so there was corruption everywhere in this courtyard. And so you might read what Jesus is saying and say, this is is exact. Jesus was just really disgusted by how this kind of unrighteous behavior was happening right in the courtyard of the church, of the temple. The marketplace was where women, children, and Gentiles were allowed to be. The crippled, the lame, the blind, the leper, uh, was all, uh, they were all allowed to be there. In fact, you see here, there are some, some gates. This is the gate beautiful. I don't know if you remember the lame man who sat at the gate beautiful when Peter and John went up to the temple at the hour of prayer. They met the lame man here at the gate beautiful, and he went 
healed, walking, leaping, and praising God into the area that he was allowed to be in, the court of the Gentiles. And so this is the place where most of the traffic, most of the action happened. And while there was kind of a, you know, an advertisement that you were allowed to come in if you were a woman, if you were a Jew, if you were a Gentile, if you were a child, there was a common place. There was still a major barrier between you and God. You could not go past the gate of Nicanor. You couldn't go past that gate. You couldn't go any further into the temple. And there was limitations. In fact, uh, if a Gentile was said to have crossed the wrong doorway or go into the wrong area, he could be punished severely with floggings, with whippings for desecrating the temple because the Jews would have to offer special sacrifice to re-sanctify and re-religify, if if that's even a word, the temple and make it viable for service again. So all kinds of things. So the temple also had its own guard system. They also had their own law system. There was the Roman guards, but then there were temple guards, and temple guards protected the the temple from just uh, innocent bystanders or, or visitors that went a little too far into the wrong place. So what was supposed to be a place of the presence of God, the temple was supposed to be a place where the word of God could be preached or read or heard, um, and you have, to, you have to think, we have access to our Bible on our phones, right? You have probably access to more translations in, on your phone than any generation before you has ever had access to in their lifetime. You can, you can look up Greek definitions of words, Hebrew definitions, without even buying apps for free. You can really do your own personal Bible study. Your access to the Word of God was far greater and did not even have a copy of the scripture. All they had was their, their, their trips to the temple. When they went to the temple, there would be readings aloud of scripture, and that would be it. That would, they would have to commit that to memory. They would have to somehow remember what was being said and, and bring that home with them. It was very important. The temple was, was very central to the religious life of the Jew. But as you can see, there's so many barriers to you actually getting to that temple and having that close with God experience. And so Jesus arrives at the temple. All this is going on in the background of Herod's temple. And they arrive there and there's people buying and selling and changing and exchanging. And, 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 and Jesus cleanses the temple. He turns over the tables of the money changers. He kicks the people out of the temple who are buying and selling. He, he, he reprimands the priests for allowing this kind of corruption, this kind of thing to go on in the temple. And, and you read it and you go, wow, Jesus' motive here is, is to restore the temple to its proper use. Jesus is coming here to reform the existing system. The system is broken. The, 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 the religious system is corrupted. Jesus is coming to fix the corruption, to reform what has been broken, what has been desecrated by corruption and greed. And, and Jesus is now trying to restore the temple to its proper use. Listen to what he says. You have made my father's house a den of thieves. It was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. 
So it, it kind of comes with this idea that Jesus is coming in to reform the temple. In fact, if you read the Gospels, you'll find out that Jesus did this two times. He did it once at the beginning of his ministry in John chapter 2. And then he came back and he did it again right before his crucifixion at the end of his ministry. So Jesus went to the temple twice. You go, wow, he's really working hard to reform the temple. His actions were actually quite aggressive. They were premeditated. I mean, I didn't braid a whip this morning on my way to church. I didn't ask Steph to drive, and I sat braiding my whip to get you all into shape, spiritually speaking. But that's what Jesus did. The Bible says he, he fashioned a whip and drove them out of the temple. He was aggressive. He was angry. It was even a little bit violent. One would even say that bordered on kind of crazy and a little bit losing his lid type thing. But this is, this. you look at that and say, wow, that is intense passion for the house of God. But what was Jesus really trying to say? Was he really just going against the money changers and the corruption? Was he really trying to send the message, don't sell anything in church? And I've, I've heard people make, make a doctrine out of this passage saying it's wrong to sell anything in a church building because Jesus doesn't want the house of God to be a den of thieves. Well, no, that, that is not a, a right dividing of the scripture. Uh, not to say that that's wrong for people to say we're not going to sell anything in the church that's totally up to the pastor's discretion, totally up to them whether or not they want to let that go or not, but, but it's not a biblical law or precept in Scripture that you're not allowed to sell anything in the house of God. But, but listen to what Jesus is actually saying. Two things, two, two phrases stand out. He says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. This temple was supposed to be a central location for all nations to be able to come and pray. Now, you may not, because you weren't a Jew, you may not have been able to offer all the kinds of sacrifice and enjoy all the kinds of blessings unless you became a Jew yourself. That, that, that's pretty straightforward. But Jesus said there should have been an access point for every nation to come and hear and learn and pray to the one true living God. So that's one thing. The second thing, Jesus said, you have turned the temple into a den of thieves. Interesting choice of words. Both of these words, Jesus pulls out of the, New, out of the Old Testament. Both of these words, Jesus pulled out of the Old Testament and inserted them here, we find, in his reprimand against the temple and the way it was working. Let's deal with one of the phrases, the den of thieves. Now, think about that phrase, den of thieves. A den is a place where thieves congregate to divide the spoils of their thievery. The thieves don't steal from their den. They go out into the world, rob houses, pickpocket, and bring the loot back to their den, their hideout. The den was the center of their planning and their activity. It wasn't the place of execution, but it was the place of design. It was the heart of their operations. When, when a, a thief is planning 
a, a robbery. He has a place where he does his research, studies locks, practices pickpocketing, practices picking the locks. He, he or she works hard at crafting their plan. They get their weapons in order. They get their tools in order. They sta- uh, line them up on their, under their clothes in certain ways to avoid suspicion. They work hard in their den to prepare for the work they're going to do out in the world. So it's interesting that Jesus called the temple, he said this is supposed to be the house of prayer, but this has become the heart or the center of thievery. This has become the center of planning how you are going to corrupt and taint and steal from God's people. This is your headquarters. This isn't the place where the thieving is happening. This is the center of where you are planning and the center, uh, if you think of what the Bible has to say about the center of your life, the Bible talks about your heart. Be careful what you do with your heart become, because from your heart flow the issues of life. And this speaks of not just your physical heart that pumps blood to every extremity of your body, but also the seat of your, the center of your life where you think where you reason, where you plan. Jesus says, take care of what you allow into that central part of your being because it will affect all the extremities of your life. Jesus was looking at the nation of Israel, and he went to the heart of Israel, the temple. The heart of the Jewish uh, religious experience was the temple. You couldn't get any closer to God than in the temple. You couldn't hear the word read anywhere else but in the temple. The temple was the heart, the seat, the center. It was supposed to be the place from which all the extremities of the Jewish life were fed. And Jesus said, you've turned the heart of the Jewish religious experience, their connection to God, into a den of thieves. His attack was talking about the condition of the inside. It wasn't really reprimanding the animal selling and the corrupt money changing or the the corruption of the priests uh, reusing animals for sacrifice and not actually sacrificing them to begin with. That, That was a side issue and no doubt it was part of the umbrella that Jesus was saying. But Jesus wasn't just condemning the practices of exchanging money in the temple. He was talking about the condition of the heart of the people, that the center of the Jewish life, the center of their religious life with God, their their walk with God was corrupted and was destroyed. See, Jesus wasn't just condemning the corruption. He was while, while corruption and commercialism in the temple was disturbing and irreverent, yes, it wasn't what Jesus was really drawing his attention to. Now, you have to understand this from a Jewish perspective. Male Jewish men spent many years going through Torah school. And Torah school, they learned large portions of the Old Testament by heart. Many of them could quote from Ezekiel, Jeremiah, the prophets, they could quote the Psalms. The, 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 the Jewish male was, was forced at an early age to go through a, a number of years of intense learning. And, and the teachers were so well-versed, they would literally, they would sit there with the boys and they would cover the boys' hands with honey. 
cover it with honey. Now, you have to understand, this is not where there was chocolate bars on every street corner. There weren't vending machines everywhere. Honey was a very precious commodity. It was the only dessert, really, that was available at that time. So if you got your hands on honey, you got your hands on something extremely valuable. It was like gold. And so the Jewish scribes and the teachers would cover the children's hand with honey. And while the kids are uh, just mesmerized, licking their hand clean of honey, the, the rabbi would have them teach and would teach them to memorize the scripture while they're eating their honey. And the rabbi would tell them and usually quote from there's a psalm and a proverb that talks about how God's word is better, sweeter than the honey and the honeycomb. So while they're licking the honey off their hands, the rabbi is in, in teaching them to memorize scripture and remember it. And so the Jews had an immense wealth of scripture in their brain, an, an immense wealth of scriptures. When Jesus says something like, den of thieves, 75% of the men in that audience went, I know what Jesus is talking about. Jesus was quoting from the prophet Jeremiah. What did Jeremiah have to say about the den of thieves? This is instant catalog in the Jewish mind would go, Den of thieves, Jeremiah. What did Jeremiah say about den of thieves? This is what he said. Jeremiah said, but don't be fooled by those who promise you safety simply because the Lord's temple is here. This is what Jeremiah said many, many years before Jesus. They chant, the Lord's temple is here. The Lord's temple is here, right? It's the heart of the Jewish life. We're at God's presence is here. We've got the temple. We are set. God, nobody can touch Israel because the temple is here. The Lord says, but I will be merciful only if you stop your evil thoughts and deeds and start treating each other with justice. Don't get so excited that the temple is here because if the temple is there but your heart is still evil, I'm going to judge you on the contents of your heart, not on the external edifice you call the temple. Jeremiah continues in chapter 7, verse 9. He says, do you really think you can steal, murder, commit adultery, lie, burn incense to false gods, and all those other new gods that you have, and then come here to my temple and stand before me and chant, we are safe, we've got the temple. Only to go right back to doing your evil deeds once again. Jeremiah said in verse 11, he says, Don't you yourselves admit that this temple which bears my name has become a den of thieves? Surely I see all the evil going on here. I, the Lord, have spoken. Jeremiah was reprimanding the nation while they had the beautiful edifice with the court of the Gentiles, with the gold trim on the outside of the temple and the pillars uh, Boaz and Jachin standing strong on the outside of the temple, those beautiful pillars that, that represented the strength and the form, formidable uh, power of God and the, the everlasting covenant he makes with Abraham, those things, those visuals were stunning and, and awe-inspiring and the, the, the tapestries woven in the walls and the, the, the carvings of the angels, the cherubims on the curtains and, and, and the golden cherubims that overhang the mercy seat. All of these beautiful things that were part of the temple. Jeremiah says, don't get deceived by the fact that you have a temple when inside your heart is filled with corruption. The temple has just become the center of your evil deeds. The temple that bears my name has become a den of thieves. Jeremiah continues in verse 21 of chapter 7. He says, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel says. 
take your burnt offerings and your other sacrifices and eat them yourself. <laughs> That'd be like saying to us, you know what, guys? Thanks for singing all those nice songs this morning, but why don't you just take out my name from all those songs and put your own name in it? Sing to yourself. I don't want to hear it. Eat your own worship. Because in reality, you're not worshiping me. You're worshiping yourself. So don't pretend. Just be honest about it. Come to church and sing about yourself. Come to temple and, uh, and eat your own sacrifice. Eat the fat of the lamb. Eat the, the burnt offering yourself. Don't give it to me. Don't pretend to give me the offering. Just give it to yourself. You know, instead of signing that check over to, to God and saying, oh, God, I'm going to give you my offering, just go buy yourself a, a nice lunch somewhere. Just go eat your own worship. That's what he was saying. When I led your ancestors out of Egypt, God says, I, it was not burnt offerings and sacrifices I wanted from them. Do you know God did not need their worship? God is surrounded by heavenly beings. Two wings that fly, two wings that cover their face, two wings to cover their feet. The head of a lion, an eagle, an ox, and uh, a man. This is, this is the kind of creatures God's throne is surrounded by. His throne is surrounded by rainbows all around, sitting on some kind of emerald platform. Okay? And, and those creatures that fly around him say to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of the glory of God. There is a constant praise and worship of God around his throne. God looks at us and says, I don't need your devotion. I don't need your offering and I don't need your tithes. He says, you know what? I've got a cattle. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I know where the veins of gold run so deep in the earth. I know where the largest diamonds that have yet to be harvested are. I don't need your money. I don't need your singing. While it's nice and he loves it and he wants it, he doesn't need it. It's not for him. Why did he call it the den of thieves? Who were they stealing from? Well, they weren't stealing from God. If worship is not about, really, it's, it, worship doesn't give anything to God. You're not adding to his worship account. I, if You can get really, uh, this is just my Marvel Universe rant, okay? I, like, I have nothing really against Marvel Universe. But, but there's this, you know, this idea that the more the people love the superhero, the more popular and more powerful they become, Right? And some superheroes thrive on that praise and worship sense that, that comes to them. And they, they get more powerful the more followers they have. And, you know, there's all this kind of thing where they need the fan base to support their work and their effort. Not like that with God. The Bible says that God is self-sufficient. He is the only thing in the world that is self-sufficient. You are not self-sufficient. You relied on the power company to turn your lights on this morning. If you think you're self-sufficient, let's just cut the power for a few days and see how unself-sufficient you really are. You are not self-sufficient. Each one of you has a boss. For those of you that grew up saying, I can't wait to get out of the house and be my own boss, and then you get into the real world and realize that nobody is actually their own boss, that everybody has a boss, right? And so you learn that authority was actually something that was probably just a fact of life, and you better get used to it and just start liking it and 
learn how to operate in it, right? But nobody's self, God is the only one who is self-sufficient. He does, nothing is added to his account when you worship him. So what is the point of worship? The point of offering sacrifices to God wasn't because God wanted to smell the, the smell of burning animal flesh. It was so that the people could have something to devote themselves to. See, God created me to need to worship him. I need to worship God. God doesn't need my worship, but I need to worship him. I need to acknowledge who he is. I have a need to recognize him as my creator. I have a need to look to him for direction, counsel, guidance, protection, direction. I need God. I need to worship him. So the thief I'm stealing from, I'm the thief, and if I'm, I'm being the thief, I'm really stealing from myself. I'm robbing myself of a relationship with God. God says, it wasn't burnt offerings that are required of them. All I wanted for them was to obey me and that I would be their God and they would be my people and I would lead them and, I, and all, everything would be well. I would guide them. I would direct them. And, and before you get your, your brain in a knot trying to think of that, just remember that when you bought your Apple iPad for the first time or your, your, your new smartphone, you didn't go to the dictionary to figure out how to use it. You went to the user manual to learn how to use the product that was designed for your benefit. And it is the same with the Word of God. Just like you go to a user manual to find, unless you're one of those rogue types that says, I'm just going to figure it out on my own. <laughs> I'm kind of like that. So, But, but oftentimes, I, you know, after I'm, I'm frustrated trying to figure it out on my own, I usually end back up at the user manual, you know, to figure out what troubleshoot here. Help me figure out what I'm doing wrong. What button am I not pressing right? It's the same principle with the Word of God and with life. God's user manual for your life is the Bible. God is the one who created life. He spoke life into existence. He knows how he intended it for it to be created. I, I, I saw a funny comic strip once of a, a daughter coming into her, father, her aged father's home, and she was horrified to see him using her, the, the new uh, iPad Pro as his chopping board. He was using it to cut up his vegetables. And she was like, Dad, what are you doing here? That was, that was supposed to be for us to have FaceTime conference. He's like, oh, I thought it was a cutting board. I had no idea. He had no idea that the iPad, he thought it was, I just thought it was a nice cutting board. It works great. Uh, and it, because she was like, Man, that was an expensive cutting board. You just destroyed. You know, he's washing it in the, the sink. We're rinsing all the vegetable juice off of it. Using it for the unintended. Uh, if you want a new cutting board, Dad, I'll go and buy a 1999 cutting board from the store. Don't use the $3,000 iPad Pro that I just gave you for a cutting board because that's not what it was intended for. Your life was created by God with immense value and immense power and immense usefulness. And if you don't go to the manual to find out how God intended you to use it, it's like using an iPad for a cutting board. You're really stealing from yourself. When Jesus went into the temple, 
he saw what was going on and he says, the problem here isn't that you're changing money in the temple, but that the temple has instead of been a, a center of prayer for the nations, it is a den, a center of thievery. It is the heart of corruption. Instead of being the heart of everything that is righteous in your life and everything that is good in your life, it is the heart of corruption. And the way it is the heart of corruption is when church, prayer, fasting, and religious activity is, becomes a substitute for your daily relationship and dependence on God. Because every single one of us can come to church on Sunday, Wednesday, Friday, whatever day is available. We can go to prayer meeting. We can do all of the trappings of church. We all know how to put on the mask, dress the part, look right. But the internal connection with God has been pulled from connectivity. The cord's been pulled from the wall. All the trappings are there. The temple is there. The sacrifice is there, right? Because the Bible says that we don't, the reason why we don't worship at the temple of, of Herod or Solomon is because the Bible says your, your bodies have now become the temple of the Holy Ghost. God wants to fill you with His Spirit like He filled the temple in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Bible says that when they offered the sacrifices to God and repented, the glory of the Lord came in like a cloud and it filled the house. There was a flame of fire that fell from heaven and landed on the temple, igniting the sacrifice. And on the day of Pentecost, when, the, when they were all gathered together in the upper room, after Jesus had died and offered the last blood sacrifice for the sins of man. When the disciples were gathered in their upper room, the Bible says there was a wind that blew into the house and there was flames of fire that sat on each head of the disciples, signifying that God had transitioned from a temple made with hands to the temple of our bodies. That now God wants to fill your life with His Spirit. That your body will now be the temple. But you can have the right-looking temple and no spirit governing it on the inside. Proverbs says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. The promise is it will be healing to your flesh refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits of your produce. Your barns will be filled with plenty. Your vats will be bursting with new wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves those he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Jesus doesn't want your temple to be an outward edifice of Christianity, but an inward mess. One that's not devoted, one that doesn't really love the things of God, but just pretends to. You know, when church is over, you go back to the old way of living, the old way of thinking, the old, old things of doing, and you don't, you don't acknowledge God throughout the week. You don't, you don't look to Him for direction. You don't seek him on a daily basis. Then you can become a den of thieves. Your heart, your body, 
can be no different than the temple of Jesus' day, where it was just a, it was just a temple. You're just someone who goes to church. You're just a Christian. But there's really no connection with God. So what is the temple supposed to be? Jesus said the temple is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. If the temple of Jesus' day, Herod's temple, was supposed to be a center for every nationality to be prayed for, every country, every person, every individual, every king, every, every uh, uh, average individual, every, every uh, doctor, every lawyer, every homeless individual, every person. If, if the house of God's temple was supposed to be a house of prayer, then, then what are our bodies supposed to be? Paul said it like this, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. God doesn't live in a temple made with hands. He wants to live in your heart. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be kneeling 24-7 or praying long, flowery prayers. But in all your ways, are you acknowledging him? Are you looking to God in, in your decisions and saying, God, direct my steps here. I don't know if this is the right decision to make. You know that, you know, I was saying this to somebody recently. The only difference between you and the President of the United States, really, might be some education, might be some life experience, but the only real difference is you don't know the key codes to launch nuclear missiles. On, 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 on the same level, you are the same kind of human that has to make the same way you make decisions, probably not that different from the President of the United States, maybe a little bit different, maybe a few more processes and and, 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 and skill there, but on the, on the end of the day, he's a human being just like you and me. We're in the same boat, folks. We all have to make decisions. And we're just as equipped in our brain. Just because you have a title, a CEO of a company, it doesn't have more brain cells than you. He might have some more education. He might have maybe a little bit skilled in a different way but he's a human being with the same amount of brain cells and, and the same amount of reasoning capacity that you have here today, despite your years of education or non-education. He's a human being. We're all limited, finite human beings, and we all really need to look to God and say, in all my ways, I acknowledge you. Direct my path. And we stand this morning. Prayer is your connection to the throne of God. Prayer is, is the, is the plug-in to God's presence. Humility is, I mean, prayer starts with humility, right? It starts with you saying, I, I need you. I, I don't have it all together. I need you. What did we sing this morning? You're worthy of it all. From you are all things. Everything that is, is from you. And to you are all things. Everything that is really belongs to you. It, it's supposed to go back to you. You deserve the credit. You deserve the, the glory. You deserve 
the, uh, people have taken what you've made and they've corrupted it and they've, they've destroyed it. You, you don't deserve the blame for all things, but, but everything that you have created is good in its sense and in it the way it was supposed to be used and directed. It's good. So God, you are, you are good. From you come all things good. And we need you. I need you today. Lord, let my life be a house of prayer. Let my life be a house of prayer, not a den of thieves, not a place of corruption, not a, not a center of, of disobedience, but a center of obedience to you. As we sing this chorus again, you're worthy of it all. Would you just maybe rededicate yourself to him? You can find a place of prayer in the front here this morning, or you can pray from your seat. It's up to you. But just for a few moments, would you turn your life over to Jesus? Turn your heart over to him. Just in this moment. You're not responsible for the next 24 hours of the day right now. You're just responsible for this moment. God's not judging you on the way you responded to him yesterday. He's, he's, he's just here with you right in this moment. How are you going to respond to him in this moment? You're worthy of it all.